Dear Jesus, we thank you for being who you are. As we learn more about the real God, may you be big in our life. May we sense that you are the true and living God, the Lord God omnipotent that reigns. May you reign in our daily life. May you reign in our families, in our church. God, I pray that you would bless America as we humble ourselves before you and seek your face. Help us to glorify you by taking the message to this world and making disciples of all nations. Lord, as we make decisions in this service today, I pray that you would bless the reading of your word. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things out of your law. God, bless those that are present. Bless those that are listening online. And I pray that you would help us to better understand your plans, your purposes in life as we are reminded of your sovereignty. In Jesus' name, amen. There's been a, I'll go ahead and turn to Philippians 2, that's our text for the day, but uh, there's been a debate for hundreds of years, if not 2,000 years, dealing with God being in control of everything and doing whatever he chooses and man having a free will. And how do we balance these two aspects? How can God be sovereign and control of everything and man still have a free will? Well, the debate's been going on, and I don't think I'm smart enough to, to end that uh, debate and that battle, so I just choose to accept both. I believe God is in control, and I believe that he gives us a free will. And how they come together, I don't understand quite that tension of uh, all these aspects, but I just believe the Bible teaches that, and as I look at it, that we have choices to make. Our church is called Choice Baptist. We can make choices as we get up in life. But in the end, God is working through all of life's circumstances and bringing about his ultimate plan and his purposes. This idea of, of uh, God being in full control and man being able to make his own decision isn't really comprehensible and, and unexplainable to a certain extent, though theologians have tried to do it for a long time. And philosophers kind of have this false dichotomy that deals with a similar idea. Some would say, well, God is either strong enough to change the circumstances, but he doesn't really care to. He doesn't love us that much. Or God is desirous to change circumstances in life, but he's just not that powerful. He's limited by man or he's limited by some other means that God might have control, but he doesn't care, or God cares that he doesn't have control, or God loves us, but uh, is he really omnipotent? Is he in full control? And, and this tension between those two truths, I can't uh, make a final uh, you know, statement to kind of understand it all, but I just believe both of these aspects are true. And today as we start uh, back to the series on uh, the real God and we learn about who he is, we're learning about the sovereignty of God, that God is sovereign, he's in control, that God can do as he pleases. He's that powerful. He created the world so he can do what he wants. There's not to be a salad bar religion where we take certain parts of the Bible and say, well, I like that about God. Well, I don't so much like that part, so I'm just going to ignore it and not live it out in my life. We've got to accept the whole revelation of God. 
this year our theme is the truth sets us free. And so God gives us a truth. He said his word is truth. God reveals himself to mankind. And if we want to see the true God as he longs for us to see him, we see that God is good, that he is gracious. It's the idea of his moral attributes when we study theology. But then there is the natural attributes of God, that God is omnipotent, he's omniscient, he's omnipresent, he's eternal, he's immutable, meaning he never changes, that there are the, his natural attributes, that's who he is in his general form, and the moral attributes, that's who, who he is as it relates to his glory. God reveals these things to us. Now, in the book of Isaiah chapter 44, and we have the verses on the screen, I want you to see this. Look at the names of God and look at his actions as well, if you will. Isaiah 44, 6 says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. You see all those titles for him? That's how big our God is. Now look at his actions in verse 7. And who can proclaim as I do? God is talking to the nation of Israel here in the book of Isaiah, and he's talking about idolatry. They're caught up with idolatry. They're making idols like the heathen nations are, and they're so limited. <clears throat> and he says about these idols, who can proclaim as I do? Can any of them predict the future? Can any of these tell you what's going to happen, though it hasn't happened yet? Then let him declare and set an order for me. He says, can the idols do that? Can the false religions predict and declare and proclaim? Can they set in order? Can they make these decisions? Since I appointed the ancient people, he determined what people were going to do and what was going to go on in life. He appointed certain things. And the next verse says, and the things that are coming in the near future and shall come in the distant future. God is saying, I control people and I control events. That's how big our God really is, that he is sovereign. The idols can't do it. Other religions don't predict the future, but God has. Those idols are hopeless. He says in Isaiah 44, 24, notice this, thus says the Lord, we sang about great is the Lord today, the Lord, the creator, the sustainer, the reason this world is in existence, the one we're to bow before, your redeemer, who, who formed you from the womb. Think about that, that tiny detail from the moment of birth. I was able to talk to John and Abby uh, this week. They just uh, were able to have their first child, and they're so excited about it. Just imagine from that moment of conception how small that detail really is, how God designs all those things out in our DNA from the moment of conception, from the womb. I am the Lord who makes all things. Notice what he says. Who stretches out the heavens all alone the vastness of creation, who spreads abroad the earth by myself. You see, he made everything. He designed it. He is in control, and he does as he pleases. So how can I understand this God, and how am I to respond to his sovereignty? I want to pick up in Philippians 2 and really have a, a simple message with two simple thoughts that I want to give to you. And the first is simply that we need to look back. When circumstances come in life, we look back. 
Look at verse 5 here, Philippians 2, 5. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, remember Jesus is God. He was a, had the very attributes of God. He is God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He became a man, but even in his humanity, he was God. But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. He humbled himself and came to this earth, not as God, but as man. He was in the likeness of man. And being found in the appearance of a man, look here again, he humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus, who is God, became man in his humility. And he not only died, but he died the death of the cross. Our Savior dies for sinners. The creator serves his creation. God loves the world. And whenever we begin feeling like life is unfair... You ever feel that way? Do you ever have your own pity party and you, know, you have some suffering, some trials, some difficulties in life? One of the young adults showed me a verse uh, earlier. He said, uh, um, in the first message, he said, it reminds me, Philippians 1 says, God's not only uh, called us to believe on his name, but also to suffer for his sake. And he said, often we forget about that. That God has a plan for our suffering. God uses suffering. God uses the difficulties, and it's a part of his plan in life. But whenever we start feeling like life is unfair, let's consider the cross for a minute. Because Jesus had never done anything wrong. He did not deserve death, and he certainly did not deserve the painful death of the cross. It's not fair at all that Jesus went to the cross. And for a moment, let's back up and just look to the cross. And the way it looked is that there was a religious teacher that because of his teaching lost control and was at the mercy of the Jewish religion and its leaders. He was at the mercy of the Roman soldiers who placed him on the cross and killed him. He was at the mercy of the crowds that said, crucify him, crucify him. And we look to the cross at this helpless man that's on the cross <clears throat> because of his teaching. What an unfair thing. People saying he saved others, but he cannot save himself. How helpless this individual truly is. But let's back away from the human picture and see what God saw. You see, from a heavenly scene, things look quite different, just like they do in our circumstances in life when we look back. Revelation 13, 8 says this, all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose name has not been written in the book of life of the lamb. Notice the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. Jesus didn't just die 2,000 years ago, but before this world was ever created, in the mind of God, in his perfect plan, he devised and designed 
that his son would go to the cross. And the Trinity, look at the next verse in Acts chapter 2, Acts 2.23. We see the Trinity getting together. And Peter, if you, if you study what's going on in Acts 2, Peter is preaching to the Jews. And he says to the Jews that had just killed their Messiah, you are guilty of Jesus going to the cross. You have blood on your hands because of what you've done. But he backs up for a moment and he makes this statement in Acts 2.23. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel or the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Peter said, you killed Jesus. You rejected him. But in reality, God killed him. The Trinity had gathered together in eternity past and said, this is what we're going to do. Our son, my son is going to the cross and he's going to die, not as a helpless victim, but in the divine plan of God, God had worked all these things out. There's the heavenly scene, but now look at how Jesus describes it in his earthly ministry. Matthew 26, this is a really neat passage. Matthew 26, verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings, he's talking to his uh, disciples. He just uh, told him about predictions that were going to come in the near future and uh, in the last days. And after he began teaching those things, he says to his disciples, verse 2, you know that after two days is the Passover and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now, notice what he said. Jesus has been teaching. He's predicting events that are going to come about. He's getting ready to go to the cross. And so he's talking to his disciples, and he said, in two days is the Passover, and at the Passover, I am going to die. Remember, they just didn't understand quite. Jesus had told them throughout the book of Matthew that I'm getting ready to die. They didn't quite comprehend it. And he says, in two days, I'm going to be crucified. Now, look at verse 3. Then the chief priests, the scribes and the elders, the religious leaders in Israel of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. Jesus says, I'm getting ready to die. Guess how he's going to die? These enemies are plotting together and they said, I'm going to kill, we are going to kill Jesus, verse 5. But they said... Not during the feast or the feast of Passover. Jesus says, I'm getting ready to go to Passover. <clears throat> In two days, I'm going to die. His enemies who are going to crucify him said, we're going to kill Jesus, but we're not going to do it at the Passover. Now, who was right? When did Jesus die? Just as he predicted. His enemies said, <clears throat> said we're not going to do this at the Passover but they did it at the Passover. Why? Because they were not in control of the circumstances. God, our sovereign Lord, knew exactly what was going on. Jesus died at the Passover. Man was not in control, but God was working to bring about his plans and his purposes. It didn't look fair when they were standing looking at Jesus on the cross. Why would they kill such a nice man? How could they do that? <clears throat> But Isaiah says it pleased the Lord to bruise him. God knew what he was doing. That we could come to him and have eternal life. God was working through these circumstances. We even see in John 10 verse 17, Jesus talking to his disciples in his last days. Therefore my father loves me because I laid down my life that I may take it again. Look at verse 18. No one takes it from me. 
Who killed Jesus? The Roman soldiers, they nailed him on a cross. And Jesus said, nobody takes my life. It's the Jews that cried, crucify him, crucify him. And Jesus said, nobody takes my life. But I lay it down to myself, <clears throat> and I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. Who has the power? Only Jesus. Jesus had a plan. And he's bringing about his plan. As we go through the book of John in chapter 13, he said, I knew, he knew it, was, it was ready to happen. And that's when he washes the disciples' feet and he heads out to be crucified. And at the trial, Pilate is questioning Jesus. And he asks Jesus a question, and Jesus does not respond. Jesus doesn't answer. So Pilate, in his anger, gets ready to say something. In John 19, verse 10, then Pilate said, Are you not speaking to me? Nobody has a right to not answer me. I'm Pilate. Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you? Wow. See, he thought he had the power. And I have the power to release you. Jesus was not going to let his father's sovereignty go. So he says this in verse 11. You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. How did Jesus end up on the cross? Nobody takes my life. Nobody has the power to do that. He's God. He humbled himself and became a man. And not only died for us, he died the death of the cross. Not as a helpless victim, but as our glorious Savior. And he divined the plan before the creation of the world. And the lamb was slain. He had total control. God is in control even when we don't understand what he's doing. Somebody hurts somebody and we think, if God is good, why would he allow that? Steve said earlier, when he was 14, a family serving God and his mom passes away. Last week we talked about God being good. God doesn't always seem to be good, does he? But those circumstances don't always seem to be good. God is still in control. And that's how he can promise in Romans 8, 28, that he's working all things together for good. That's how Joseph could say toward the end of his life, after trial after trial, rejection after rejection, a few ups and many downs in life, ending up in prison, being lied against, being in a pit, thinking he was going to die many different times, ends up before his brother's. And he rescues his brothers, and when his dad dies, the brothers said, he's going to do us in now. He, his anger's going to come out now. And he says this in Genesis 50, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So this hurts in our past. God says, you know, I'm bringing this about. Not that he's an ogre wanting us to, go through difficult times, but he's saying, I want you to understand that I'm going to bring you through those difficulties, and I'm meaning it for good. 
because he's in control. He is all-powerful. And after the terrible cross of Jesus, let's go back to Philippians 2, look at verse 9. Because of the cross, therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. For a moment, let's just look ahead. Since he has a name that is above every name, verse 10, that at the name of Jesus. Now, this event is going to happen in the future. It should happen to every one of us today on a daily basis, bowing before him, calling him Lord. But at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Look how inclusive this is. Every knee, those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth, that's everywhere, right? No place is left out. There's going to come a day every Christian, every non-Christian, every demon of hell will have to bow before God and say, I accept that you are sovereign, that you are Lord. And guess what happens? God is glorified. So how do we respond to the sovereignty of God? Look at verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. I'm just going to stop there. You can read the rest later. But he said, you all obeyed. Do you know what we're to do? When we come before a sovereign God, obey him. What do you mean, God? You want me to leave my business and do something else? That you have a different plan. You don't want me dating this person that I love. You have this aspect of my life. What, what are you doing, God? How could you allow this cancer to take place? I don't want to accept it, God. I'm upset. I'm angry. I'm bitter at God. No, just obey him. Obey him in your finances. Obey him in your abilities. Obey him no, ma- no matter what comes your way. Remember verse 13, for it's God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Secondly, this gets kind of tough because when we go through pain, our favorite party is that pity party. Yeah, we want to get alone and complain or we want to get online and complain or we want to call our friend or go see a friend and complain. But look at verse 13. When things aren't going our way, we still have to accept the sovereignty of God. And, And he says, do all things without complaining and disputing. I grew up reading the King James that uses the word murmur, like the tents back with the nation of Israel. And Moses told them to do something and didn't like it. And they went to their tent and it sounded like this murmur, 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 murmur. You know, when somebody's just talking and complaining, that's what the word means. They're just, you know, yapping at the bit there and just murmur, 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 all these negatives. And you know what? We do it with our mouth and we do it in our brain so often, right? We complain and God says, don't do it. Accept my plan. We don't like all of circumstances. Maybe we don't like the current president or we don't like the political scene or we don't like injustice or we don't like people or whatever the circumstances in life. But we don't complain. Yeah, Christians tend to be some of the worst there. Instead of just accepting God's plan. And I'm saying we rejoice in everything. Oh, great. I just got a test that says that I have cancer. I'm not saying that at all, but if, until you get to the point where you say, God, I thank you for whatever the event is, we'll never get over it. Obey 
don't complain. And he goes on to say, here's the reason don't complain. That you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. There's plenty of people that are going to complain around you, but here's what I want you to do. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. Our worship should be our witness. How are you doing today? I'm not saying you always say, oh, great, wonderful, because life isn't always great and wonderful. But when we go through difficult trials and all we do is complain and murmur and dispute, argue, you can't be that bright and shining light. What do we do is he said, he's the name that's above every name. And so we bow before him and worship, not just during a song at church, but in our prayer life, in our work life, in our school life, in our community life, in our family life at home. Be a light to the world that is around us. And we're holding forth the word of life to be a witness. And life can really stink at points, right? I must have had some pity parties over the last couple of weeks. Uh, different people sent me, know, hey, Tim, how are you doing? Different pastors I, I know and stuff. How are things going? Even this week, Pastor, over the last two weeks, Pastor Steve, he must have been worried about me because he sent me, know, hey, I'm praying for you. How are you doing? And uh, like, man, my kids have moved away. It's okay. But uh, my grandkids moved away, right? That's not okay, right? And, I, and probably it's shown on my face or maybe, you know, sad at times. And, and I've had to deal with some pity parties of my own. Like, hey, praise God, my kids are gone, right? Well, I did raise them to them to leave, you know, they're part of the empty nest. But I'm like, I don't know, has anyone else ever experienced empty nest? You know, I think I'm the only one, right? Have anybody else dealt with some things in life? And I, so I've had my pity parties in life, had some trials and difficulties. But we've got to come to God. He is sovereign. He's got it figured out. So we obey him, we trust him, we worship him. And and again, look at verse 16, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. God, what are you doing? I've got it figured out. You just trust me, you just serve me, keep holding forth the word of life, sharing the gospel with other people around you, make sure that your worship is your witness, you're telling people how good our God is. And one day we'll hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. As the team comes to close us in prayer, let's just bow our heads for just a moment. As we think about how good our God is. The Bible ends like this in Revelation 19. Hallelujah. For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Father, we accept your sovereignty. I don't understand it. I can't fully teach it. How that works with your love, the free will of man, these different tensions that we have in life, I'm not sure. But God, you are Lord. You ordain events. You appoint people and circumstances. No one else can determine the future. You are God. And God, we bow before you as Lord.
May every one of our knees bow and every tongue confess that you are Lord to the glory of God the Father. May you be glorified by our lips this morning, our heart as we bow before you. May we see your greatness, God, and accept you, your plans and purposes. And as we sing this song, lift him up. If you've never accepted Jesus as Savior, trust him today. Call upon his name. Make him Lord of your life. Let's stand as we worship him and sing this song out to our sovereign God.